here I am up here in northern Michigan doing this interview on the phone with him. And so I start saying, yeah, you can get it at uh, Borders and B. Dalton and Walden Books. And my wife is in the kitchen looking at me and she's like, and she mouths, she's like, what are you saying? And I'm like, what do I do? We are sitting down to dinner an hour later and the phone rings and it's Borders corporate headquarters in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hey, Mm. what do we have to do to get a case of those audiobooks? And that's how things really got rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Total Michigan, where we talk to ordinary Michiganders who are doing some pretty extraordinary things. I am your host, Cliff Duvinois. If Michigan is the home of cryptids, then I would have to say where I'm at right now would probably be their living room. And I really don't even have to introduce today's guest because every time I've been around Michigan and I've told people who I'm going to be interviewing, their mouths drop open, their eyes Google like crazy because everybody seems to know who he is. But I want to take him on anyways and just introduce him to the show because it's really a great honor to have him here. You probably know him because of the Michigan Chiller series that is out there that he has written under his pen name of Jonathan Rand. So with that being said, (laughs) I'm going to introduce... Jonathan Rand to the show, i.e. Christopher Todd Wright. There you go. How you doing? Good. How are you? Really good. Excellent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up? Yeah. I was born in Pontiac. I grew up in Waterford Township until my fourth grade year of school and moved to Grayling, which was at the time we'd been visiting. We had some property on the Osable River. On the weekends, we would come north and I got in at a very early age. I got into fly fishing and just, and I love being outdoors and I love for being out in the woods. Even from my, even my at kindergarten is first grade. I was very well aware of the conservation field. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to get a job working in the conservation field or okay. as a veterinarian or something. So when my parents said, hey, how, you know, would you like to move to Grayling? I was like, oh my gosh, this would be a dream come true. And we came home from one of our trips on the weekend and there was a sold sign on the real, and I just, I had the elation of that going, oh my gosh, this is a dream come true. So it was between my fourth and fifth grade years of elementary school was when we moved. And it was just like a magical time because just exploring the woods like I'd never been able to do before for longer periods of time. And then I just really fell in love with the Northern lifestyle and started going to college. And that was a pretty tough week, of course. (laughs) So yeah, did not really apply myself. But that's really the interesting thing about growing up is, and I look back on it now, is how much reading and writing played such a pivotal role. Yes. Um, because, yeah, and I, I wasn't the kind of kid that parents had to send and say, okay, you got to read a half an hour tonight or whatever. It's, I was the kid that I thought I was getting away with something because I was hiding books under my pillow with a flashlight. And then, of course, <laughs> so you find out years later that my parents are like, yeah, we knew you were doing that. And then, but that's, <laughs> that was me. And I would scare myself silly with these stories. And I would think, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. I can't go to sleep. I'm never doing this again. And then I'd be right back in the library the next day finding the, some kind of a scary And that actually, the reading and the writing aspect, I didn't really apply myself as much as I should have in high school, and I certainly didn't in in college. But when it came to getting a job, that's when it really helped out, because I went to this local FM radio station, and I kept bugging the guy's name was Bob Greenwood, and I kept bugging him over and over for this job. And I'd never been on the radio before, didn't know anything about the equipment. But I could read well and I could write well. And that's what they needed. They needed somebody who could make these radio commercials. And and that's where everything got started because with these radio commercials, I would listen to ones that I hear on the radio and I think these are kind of boring. 
you know, there's never much to them. So I would create these crazy stories, like a Bigfoot going into a bank and opening up a checking account. And I had just, it was so much fun. It was so satisfying to do that. Plus, it also worked in the way for the advertisers because their commercials were getting attention. So they knew that people were hearing their commercials and it was they were getting results. And I made a pretty good career of that before I actually even started writing books. So, What was it that attracted you to write in the first place versus just reading or going outside and playing yeah. baseball for that matter? What was it about writing in particular? Well, I think I think where I get ideas when I, and that's a question I think most authors get is where do you get your ideas? And I th and the answer for me has always been I get them from reading other people's books. And it doesn't mean that I I, I would copy somebody's idea, but I would read a book and I would get, I think, oh man, I could write a story about this or somebody should write a story about this. And I did, actually, I should, I, one of my first, very first stories, I fell in love with, there was a series of books by Beverly Cleary, uh, the Henry Huggins character. And so I was writing these Henry Huggins, like fan fiction when I was in first grade. And I just had like little short stories, but I would combine my interests at the time with the Henry Huggins character. And they were just, you know, they were just a little page long or two page long stories. But it was really fun for me to project myself and because I, I felt like it was me in that story. And I never forgot that. I always felt like when I was reading, I was there. I was sharing that experience with that character. And then I realized I could create that experience for that character who happens to be me. And it was great fun being in elementary school writing stories about Martian invasions and interplanetary <laughs> travel because I was the guy that was blasting off into space. I never separated that. It was just something. It was an exercise in imagination and creativity, but I didn't really see it for that at the time. I just, it was just fun. And what would you say sparked your interest in, I'm just going to lump this into sci-fi as all together because now you're talking about blasting off into space. Yeah. You mentioned Bigfoot earlier. Where did this interest come from? Up until my middle school years, I was reading pretty much anything and everything. I, I felt there were several books that I, I loved. I loved a, a book called The Phantom Toll Booth by Norton Juster, James and the Giant Peach by Road Dahl, a book called My Side of the Mountain by Gene Craighead George. But in sixth grade, I want to say I think it was Mrs. Latimer read a story out loud in sixth grade. It was called All Summer in a Day by, and it was by Ray Bradbury, a short story. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those that just, it hit me at the end of that story. That story just hit me with a two by four. And I was afraid to look around because I know I had tears in my eyes and I didn't want anybody to see them. And I looked around and I saw that there were other students that had these, the same thing. And so I went rushing up to the library, Grayling Middle School is the library up the top in this old building. And I started looking for more short stories by Ray Bradbury. And I come across like this whole shelf of novels. Something Wicked This Way Comes. Which Dan gave me goosebumps. Oh, I know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Dandelion. I just stood there looking at this shelf in Fahrenheit 451. And then there's other short stories. You know, R is for Rocket and The Illustrated Man. I was like, oh my gosh. And that's when I started. And Ray Bradbury led me to Arthur C. Clarke. And yes. Some of the real great iconic Isaac Asimov, Heinlein, Silverberg, and a lot of these great sci-fi authors. So I developed an appreciation for that as, as well as, I always loved the scary type stuff. And the Alfred Hitchcock had the three, All the three investigators. investigators. And yes. yeah, I yeah. love that series. Yeah, it was great. It was really cool. And the Hardy Boys too, mysteries. Mm, so yes. I was reading lots of different things. So it wasn't really just 
you know, the, the horror aspect of it. There was a, this, this amalgamation of all different types of reading genres that influenced me growing up. At what point did you decide to make that leap from being in radio to actually start focusing on becoming a published author? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I actually, that was almost, a, there was a transitional period because it was in 1995 and I had, I had read a book and uh, it was a little cabin way off and it was 11 miles out in the woods living like a king in a little cabin at a white shepherd mixed dog and uh, doing these commercials in a little tiny home studio. This is before MP3 and internet really right. would, had come on. So I had to record these commercials on a quarter inch stereo tape and I was driving them over to the airport in Pelston, Michigan to meet the, because I was always missing the FedEx deadline. So I'd have to take it like directly to the FedEx office. And <laughs> I was always calling Chuck on the phone, the pilot, like, hey, don't leave, man. I got stuff coming your way. And I, I read a book. I was, at, I was sitting down by the fireplace in my living room and I read a book and I literally, I got done with it and I threw it over by the wood pile. And I was like, if that guy can write a book and get it published, I can be, I can do this. And I think it's important to point out, I didn't have, it wasn't like an arrogant sense, like I knew what I was doing because I'd never written a book before. Right. But I just felt, I've got, the, I've got these ideas and I keep thinking about them and I keep thinking about them and I, I don't do anything about them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit down and I'm going to try and write a book. And, and I, then I realized that something happened too. It was Edgar Rice Burroughs did the exact same thing in 1910 or something like that when he was working as a copy editor for a magazine. He had read some stories and he's like, gee, I could do that type thing. And so I embarked on this journey of writing a, my first adult fiction novel was, it was called The, adult, the Laurentian Channel. It was about a kind of a shipwreck dive murder mystery in the Straits of Mackinac. And it took me a while. I was picked up by a publisher. While I watched from the sidelines what was going on, I was finding out more about the publishing world and the publishing industry. And again, at the time, this was really before the internet. It was, yes. There was a little bit there, but you couldn't just go out and Google something like you can now. You really didn't have that kind of knowledge. You had to do some digging. But from what I could see, I was like, man, this is, I just didn't really care. I got a bad taste for the publishing industry before my book was even published. And I was right. like, I kept thinking I could do this better than these guys. And so what I wound up doing was I pitched this audiobook about a haunted lighthouse and I pitched it to a number of publishers and most of them said, we're not going to do this because, Pass. yeah, we're going to, yeah, sure, you got your own recording studio, wink, wink. Yeah, sure. They didn't realize the <laughs> scope of what I was doing. But then I put myself in their position thinking, here's this guy in northern Michigan calling them from this little cabin. You know, what would, what, you know, would I expect? So I thought, I'll do it myself. So I did. I recorded it. It was a three-hour story I wrote. It was called St. Helene. It's a haunted lighthouse story about the island west of the Mackinac Bridge. I finished the story. And uh, it was funny because my wife and I had gone into a, a restaurant called The Boathouse in Sheboygan. And it was like this, I don't know, a, a minor celebration of just finishing the audio book or the audio version of the text for writing it. I hadn't recorded it. And I met a guy there by the name of Eric Berkey. And he was the bartender. But we got talking that night and he said, my dad has a boat down at the marina. Have you ever been to St. Helene? And I said, no. And he said, you'll meet me down there tomorrow. We'll go. And so we drive, uh, we got, and immediately I got, I knew I picked the wrong slip because I, we drive and it's my wife and I, and we have a little cooler, a cooler lunch and we're looking at, and I'm looking at the slip number and I'm looking at this boat and I'm going, this is not the right place because it's like a 40 foot cigarette boat. And I'm like, this is, wow. no, this is the wrong, this is the wrong place. And, and it was the right one. 
And so we got we took this for this huge. I think it was forty five. I'm not maybe exaggerating, but, but it was a big, big boat. Cigarette looked like it was a good looked like yeah. it was eighty feet long. We took this thing across the Straits of Mackinac all the way over to Saint Helena Island. We took a dinghy in and spent the, and it was in, it was the most. It was all it was bone chilling to me because what I had written about was almost identical of what we encountered on the island. It was like I had been there before. And here was this story about the Borders family and their encounters with supernatural entities on the island. And of course, we didn't have any of that happen to us. But as far as the layout of the island, some trails, it was really spooky about how that had, you know, it, it, I had written about that. So we took all kinds of pictures. I used one of them, gave it to a graphics artist, and he wound up actually using it for the cover of the audiobook, which I solely produced the whole thing. I wrote it, music, sound effects, did everything, put it on cassette tape. Remember nice. those? Yes. And it was two cassettes, and we sold it for $29.95. And I took it into some of the local bookstores, which were very kind. They were very nice, and they were very polite. But one of them was like, hey, where's your ISBN? And I'm like, what's an ISBN? I didn't know. I had no idea. And this yeah. was the international standard book number. And I'm like, I didn't know what it was. And they said, well, you have to have one of these pretty much to, to, have the, to have these sold. But the thing occurred to me at the time was that I had this audio book. And even though you know, only a few people, my friends and such had listened to it at the time, and the, but they really were very kind. They thought it was, they really liked it. And I thought, I'm going to have a hard time selling this if I don't, if I can get this in a few bookstores, that's great but there's only a couple of bookstores up here. And so I started thinking about, thinking in Northern Michigan, we've got this big, huge tourist base. People come from all over the world. Yeah, They don't come here to go to bookstores, really. We've got a couple great ones, but that's not their prime motivation right. to come here. But they do have to eat, they do have to sleep, and they do have to put gas in their car. So that's what I thought. I thought, okay, restaurants, hotels, and gas stations. And my wife and I hit the road, and we just went around to... Everywhere, a gas station, restaurant, or a hotel. And I wouldn't take no for an answer. I was just like, I would finally, if a, a store owner didn't want to buy these and then resell them, I would say, look, I'll tell you what, I'm going to leave you five of them and I'm going to come back in two weeks. And if you haven't sold any, I'll take them and I'll give you one for free for your trouble. And it worked great because it got me out of their face. <laughs> it was, I was done. <laughs> and, but it was like literally within a couple of days, all of a sudden the phone said, our home phone. It's, hey, we're out of them audiobooks you just dropped off. And all, next thing you know, we've got our own little- Sometimes seeing is believing. Dis yeah, yeah. So it worked out pretty cool. And that's really how it got started, everything really. It started when the thing that really took things up to a next level is that we, we, the audiobook was given to a friend of ours by the name of Mike Ridley. And I, I gave it to him. He was driving. He drives all around. He's an entertainer. And he listened to it and he really enjoyed it. So he gave it to a friend of his who at that point was working in Detroit radio. His name was Ken Cal, Ken Calvert. And I think he was on WJR at the time. And I get this phone call and it's Ken Calvert's producer. And he says, hey, Ken, really listened to your audiobook. He really enjoyed it. He wants to interview you. And I'm like, oh man, that'd Here be great. Here we go. So I get interviewed and I'm doing this great interview and he's very gracious with his time. It's five, I get five minutes on this radio station, millions of people listening. And, and he does a great job. He's talking about it and a consummate professional and he gets right to the end and he says, okay, he says, we got to go, but tell our listeners where they can get this great audio book. And I'm like, like deer in the headlights. Here I am up here in Northern Michigan doing this interview on the phone with him. I can't tell him, well, it's at the corner of Joe's Mobile in Levering, Michigan. <laughs> and so I start saying, yeah, you can get it at uh, Borders and 
B. Dalton and Walden books when they were before they were gone. And, uh, and my wife is in the kitchen looking at me and she turns and she's and she are mouths, you crazy? she's what are you saying? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just, what do I do? We are sitting down to dinner an hour later and the phone rings and it's Borders Har- Corporate Headquarters in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Hey, mm. what do we have to do to get a case of those audiobooks? And that's how things really got rolling. That's, yeah. I love yeah. that story yeah. all the way around. Yeah. So let's go back. I want to unpack a couple things, but before we do that, we really do need to take a break and thank our sponsors. But when we come back, I want to explore that story a little bit more and even how you got into doing Michigan Chillers. Yeah, cool. We'll be back after the break. Are you enjoying these amazing stories? Michigan is full of people that are doing some pretty extraordinary things. If you want these amazing stories sent directly to your inbox, head over to TotalMichigan.com, enter your email address and get them today. What are you going to get? I'm glad you asked. First, you're going to join our awesome Michigan community. Second, you will get an email that includes the top five interviews from the show sent directly to your inbox. Third, you're going to get exclusive behind the scenes information about the show. There's a lot of things that are happening to grow this movement beyond the confines of just a radio show and a podcast. You'll get advanced notice of upcoming guests and early access to their interviews. Now, to get all these goodies, just head over to TotalMichigan.com slash join. Enter your email address and join our awesome community today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Total Michigan. I'm your host, Cliff Duvinois. Today, we are talking with Christopher Todd Wright, a.k.a. Jonathan Rand, about his awesome adventures in the world of publishing, <laughs> which I didn't think could be exciting, but this is actually really cool. I'm thoroughly enjoying this. Chris, before the break, you were sharing with us about how you put B. Dalton and all these other bookstores on the spot to carry your book. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take a step back here because you're self-published now. Before you were saying that your book was actually picked up by a publisher, Yeah, but the audio book, you did that on your own. I did. So would you say that your experience with the audio book is really what made you kind of lean into going the self-publishing route? Uh, yeah, for sure. Because what happened is when I signed the contract with my first book, I scribbled out on the contract, I scribbled out audio rights. I did not want to give any audio rights to the publisher at all. And they had no problem with that because at the time they weren't involved in audio at all. So it worked good for me because I wanted to make sure at the time I was already doing a lot of audio work, mostly like radio commercials, obviously, and some, for, some work for film, but mostly primarily radio and television. The uh, the audio, St. Helene, when that one came along, I thought, okay, now I've got this. I can produce this. I don't know anything about putting a book together, but I can put together this long story. And it really was. Everything that about it was done essentially by me. Now, I did form a corporation, Audiocraft Publishing, 1997, that was formed just for taxes and logistics and such. So it's when you say self-published, it is true. It's self-published, but it's under the umbrella. It's under the corporation name, which still exists today. So when St. Helene came out, it was published under, under Audiocraft Publishing, but it was available only as audio and only on cassette. And I had a number of, of people ask, bookstores would say at the end of the summer that it sold quite a few books, but they said that a lot of people picked up the audio and they were intrigued, but they wondered if there was a novel, if there was a a book for Ooh, there you go. So I was like, no, there's not. But at the time, but at, during one of my, I went up to, it was, oh, actually, I do remember it was this, the Hesselboat Show in Cedarville, Michigan. I'd okay. gone up there for, a, a, for an audio book signing and I met a guy by the name of David Gurney, real creative, incredible guy. 
And he had published a book on his own. And I was just mystified. I'm like, how'd you do this? And, and he said, well, I did it in Word Perfect. And I did this. And Perfect. Yeah, oh goodness, yeah. We're in a way back machine. I know. And, uh, and he said, yeah. He said, you can, you can format all this, do all the margins and everything. And I was, this is a totally new to me. I was completely mystified that you could, and amazed that you could do this. Long story short, in the, my, the whole learning curve of getting it all done, I wound up actually in 19, summer of 1998 was when the audiobook came out. Summer of 1999, I published St. Helene as a novel. And then within, literally within weeks, I published another novel called Ferocity, which is about a giant muscalunge, 12-foot muscalunge that lives in Mullet Lake and eats people. It's just like a freshwater jaws, Should but it was fun. It was so much fun to write. It was just a <laughs> riot to write. And yeah. it, it freaked me out because you see these musculunges, not very often when you're, mostly Northern Pike, but I used to scuba dive and snorkel and you'd come across some of these northern pikes sometime and they get pretty big and they seem pretty menacing underwater. And you're like, oh my gosh, those things look like monsters. So I created this monster story called Ferocity and I created a fictitious town called Corville, C-O-U-R-V-I-L-L-E. And I thought, I want to create a metaphor. If you took everything about northern Michigan, the clean air and the fresh water and the beautiful scenery and the forest and the woods, and you put it into a bottle and you sold it as a beverage, what would you call it? I came up with this list, and what I settled on for the book, in the, and it's it published in the book, is a Courville cooler. But one of the names that I came up with was a Michigan chiller. Ooh, and, here we go. And that name hung with me all that summer. I was like, Michigan chiller. I told my wife, I said, it almost sounds like a series of, of kids' books. And, and, and I started thinking, I could write stories about different places in Michigan and, and kids that are from the area. They, they would, they would be, I'm sure they'd enjoy reading about their places or, or kids that visited. It would be fun for them to read too. So I thought, I'll do that. I'll, read, I'll try one and see what happens. And I thought, well, May, Mackinac Island is a popular place, big tourist destination. So I came up with Mayhem on Mackinac Island. And just the whole process was an absolute riot. I had so much fun writing that story, even though it was different from St. Helene and Ferocity, which at the time I was busy still working, marketing those. And then Mayhem on Mackinac Island came out in March of the year 2000. And immediately what happened was within the next month or two, remember my distribution network was relatively small at the time. Right. So Parents would come in, they'd go to a gas station or kids would be there and they would pick up Mayhem and Mackinac Island autographed copy and they would read it. And at the end of the book, and I, which is it's very synonymous with all the books that I write in the Michigan and the American Chillers, the main characters, they have the conf the, the, this climax and resolution and they solve the big problem. And then they wind up meeting another character from what will be the next book. And that main character says, I know you're had a pretty incredible experience on Mackinac Island, but wait till you hear about what happened to me in Traverse City. And this main character begins the conversation, and the reader gets the first two or three chapters of the next book at the end of Mayhem and Mackinac Island has the first couple chapters of Terror Stocks, Traverse City. So they read that, and then Billy has just read the book. He's back at his home in Farmington Hills, Michigan, and he's like, I got to have this next book. So mom and dad drive him to Barnes and Noble or whatever their bookstore is. And all of a sudden, they, in essence, what it wound up doing was making bookstores seek me out. Because I had sent out like 300 copies of Mayhem and Mackinac Island and got zero response. Nobody replied to them at right. all. Nobody was interested. 
And even those I, I, when I called in most cases, Northern Michigan, I, it was a pretty much a shoe in because it was a book about Northern Michigan. But downstate, it was a little more of a challenge. And so I, it, all of a sudden, we get a, a call from a distributor. They want one case of mayhem on Mackinac Island. And it's like 56 books. I'm like, oh my God, I'm on my way. This is great. And then, then two years well, later. Just getting the phone call yeah, is great. Yeah, on a fax. We get a fax order. Here's our fax number. And I'm like, oh my God, we get a fax. And then we get this fax order that comes through. And then a year later, we're shipping them semis, loads of books, which is cool. So I read The Dog Man of Drummond Island. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, you get to the end of the book and you, it weaves into the next book where you give out the, I guess, the first couple chapters yeah. of, like you yep, said, the following is. book. Yeah. Where did that idea come from? And I say that because I've, I've read 11 gabillion books. I haven't seen that in a book before. Where did that idea come from? I think, like all good ideas, it's borrowed or stolen, one of the two. Well, no, really, it is. I don't claim that. What I think happened with that, I think it's a unique idea, but I think it's, a, it's brought from several different... Because I remember there's several adult fiction books that I read that have like samples, sample chapters yes. of other books. And I remember, I think Goosebumps had sample chapters in their books. Oh, yes, and yes, yes, a, yes, Yeah, yes. and there's other children's books, young adult books that have like similar, that were similar to that. And so I think a lot of it did come from that, but I wanted something. I wanted, see, I had, I try to have cliffhangers at the end of all the chapters. There's yes, a really hard cliffhanger, like something immediately is going to happen. Susie is falling out of the tree into the jaws of a giant polar bear. End of chapter. Some, what is going to happen? You've got to figure out the solution for Susie. She's either going to be, her fall is going to be broken by another branch or something is going to happen and she's not going to be eaten because there's only half of the book left. Or there might be like a soft cliffhanger, which is more like some kind of just a foreshadowing type thing. I wanted to do that at the end of my books so that, yes, there was a resolution, but I wanted to leave a little bit more. And so it's okay if you like this, try this here too and see what you think. And that's what I did with Mayhem and Mackinac Island. They meet Matt from, from Traverse City and he tells them all about the this giant snow beast. And you get the first three, four chapters and you're left with a cliffhanger of this, this monster. So it's mayhem on Mackinac Island. It's yeah. the dogman of Drummond, Drummond Island. Island. You're, you're very specific about the location mm -hmm. versus trying to be as vague as possible. Yeah. Right. Which for me, reading the dogman of Drummond Island gave it a very concrete place, very yeah. small place for the story to take place. Yeah. Where did the idea come from to focus on just for that initial book? Mackinac Island, and then the next book, Traverse City. Where did the idea come to focus on that? I think for the first six books, if you take a look at them, all of them are based in northern Michigan. There's Traverse City, Poltergeist of Petoskey, Aliens Attack, Alpena, Gargoyles of Gaylord, and Strange Spirits of St. Ignace. Those cities are ones that I was really well familiar, familiar with and had traveled to quite a bit. When kids read those books, they're, they're not history lessons. I don't really, there's not much. <laughs> I'm not putting stuff in there. Yeah. You might get a little bit, you might have some landmarks and things, but for the most part, it's really story. I'm really working on the story. But then as I began to speak at schools and libraries and travel a little bit more, I wasn't not uh, unfamiliar with Kalamazoo, but I hadn't really spent a lot of time there. Now, next thing you know, I'm visiting schools in Kalamazoo and the, in the Detroit area and Saginaw. So I'm able to start. Just the idea of coming up with these titles was a riot. Dinosaurs destroy Detroit. How could you not write a story about that? Right. I was like, oh my gosh, there's so many different story ideas. And then with Dogman, 
we had a summer writing camp for a number of years, and I would always tell a dogman story, a Michigan dogman, obviously a very well-known story. So I would come up with my own dogman story at these campfire when we have these the author quest camps. And so I finally I thought, if I write a dogman story, I need a D, I need a D place in Michigan and somewhere. And I thought Dearborn, but that's close to Detroit and like Dowagiac. And then when Drummond Island hit, I thought, oh my gosh, because I went to Drummond Island to stay for two weeks to just hide away and write a book. I did that back in 2009 or 2008. And I thought, Drummond Island, it's this really, it's a huge island, right. not very many people. What a great place to have a dogman creature. So <laughs> that's how it works. So there really isn't any huge rhyme or reason to it. It's just like, you know, it, it hits my fancy at the time. Your Michigan Chillers book just, it goes gangbusters. It's popular. Mm -hmm. You're selling them. You are churning. You are prolific. How many books have you published now? About 140 right now. Sweet Moses. I know people that struggle just to get three out the door. So you've done 140. That is amazing. At some point in time, you jumped over and started creating American chillers. Yeah. Like venturing outside of Michigan. Tell us a little bit about that. I had, when I started the Michigan chillers, even before I, uh, I was still at the time thinking, this is a really cool idea. Maybe I could get a publisher involved. So I did reach out to some publishers and I had one of the largest ones in the world at the time. I did get a response back from someone there and said, this is an interesting idea, but kids aren't reading books like this anymore. And it was too oh, too specialized and too localized. And I did write back and I said, I, if the Michigan Chillers are, is popular, I could expand. I could do American Chillers or World Chillers. And I never heard anything from them. Mm. And of course, like, Two years later, after I'd sold a couple million copies, they were like, hey, how come you're not returning our calls? But what happened with that was it was in the back of my mind to, I thought I could expand this on American Children's, but at the t- in the summer of 2000, I was having so much fun. I was, I was traveling, I was doing these book signings, and I had five or six books out, just that first, yeah, five, yeah, five books out, four books out for that summer. And it was, it was just so much fun at the time that the American chillers was just off in the distance. But I started getting letters in the mail from kids and they were saying the same thing. Hey, have you thought about writing American chillers? You could write about this state and you could write about this state. Or, and I live in Illinois. Why don't you write about this? And right. so I'm like, these kids, they're on the same wavelength. So it was in December of 2001 where we had the premiere of the first book in the American chillers. We did that in, at the Royal Oak Public Library. I think it was December 12, 2001. And uh, it was from Mich- Michigan Mega Monsters. And at that point, I put the series on hold, Michigan Chiller series on hold, to get a few books out in the American Chiller series. And uh, another book called The Adventure Club, the uh, first one was called Ghost yes. in the Graveyard. That one came out. And so I had those three prongs going at the time. And uh, wasn't sure exactly where it was going to go, but I knew I was having a great time. Excellent. Yeah. And then, so you're writing books primarily geared towards kids, teens. Mm-hmm. And at some point you made the leap to get into more adults, yeah. horror, adult thrillers. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. I'd started, but I had, I'd had some regional success with St. Helene and Ferocity and a book called The Little Wrench and Channel, which at the time had not, was not published. But I, there was a, a situation that happened where, and I wish this was, I wish this would happen more often. It just doesn't happen enough. I woke up in the middle of the night with the seed, the idea of a story. And I have no idea where it came from. It was something, whether it was from a dream or what, I have no idea. But 
and I was going to write it down. I started jotting it down on a piece of paper and I thought, ah, to heck with it. And I just flopped open my laptop and I wound up literally scripting the entire book in this half asleep state, closing my laptop. And, and that was it. I went back to sleep and that was bestseller. I was really excited about the story. Problem I had was I was just, I was busy. I was traveling. I was doing all this. We didn't have a store or even if you have chiller mania at the time. I just, but I had a business manager and my wife was doing all kinds of things. I had another friend who was working for me doing tech stuff. And I thought, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to have time to, to write this. So I went up into the Upper Peninsula, which is where the story takes place anyway, and just locked myself away in this cabin for two weeks and, and literally fleshed out the entire book at the same time. And that was in the summer of, it was quite a while ago, that was in the summer of 2001 because I was just finishing up the edited manuscript of Mackinac City Mummies. And I took my printer. This is how, and this is how, what I'd done at the time. I had taken my printer because I wasn't sending my stuff off via PDF at the time. It was just, I sent it off as text to this book printer. And they would take that text and make the book from my text. So I sent the manuscript from May, or excuse me, Mackinac City Mummies just printed it up on my printer from this cabin in the woods, drove it to the post office in Wetmore, Michigan, which is just outside of Munising, and mailed it to the printer. And that's how that got started, or that was how that <laughs> book was printed. But during that time, the fun thing about doing that was, number one, I was back in the middle of the woods, and essentially there's the story that I wrote on, in that, on that laptop Everything unfolded around me and the backdrop, the atmosphere of where I was became that story and the story became the atmosphere and just meshed together. And there were times where I was, and I mentioned this too, is it because I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe there's any such thing. I think it's something that, and I think Terry Pratchett made, said, he said, writer's block is for people from California who, who can't write. <laughs> and I'm very, I believe that so very much because we all can write. You can, you, is, is there anybody that can't spell cat? You can write. Just what it is, we get into this level of judgment where we think that what we're writing is not good. And I got news for you. Probably, it's probably not. Most of what I write is not good. 90% of it is garbage. But the important thing is to continue writing until you get to those gems, until you get to those pieces, or not be afraid to edit it out. That happened a lot while I was there, but I persisted and got things done so that after two weeks, I had this really a good, solid boilerplate of a story. It took a little while to actually flesh it out again, a little bit more Certainly. to get it done, but, but that's how Bestseller came about. So Bestseller is a story yeah. about... An author seeking a publisher. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm not going to spoil it for the audience, yeah. but it is a tad bit of a thriller. And I couldn't help but the notice in there when I was reading that there was a lot of passages in there about being obsessed with finding an agent. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, was, I had to wonder if maybe there was a little bit of you in that story and, and your journey. And you know what people, and I, that's a question that I've heard before because they think it's, are, is this part of this guy? Is he really? And I would have to say that there is to an extent, but what I did with the character in that story is I thought, what if this character has those frustrations, which I did. And I think all authors do have the frustrations with their agent or their publisher, or they will if they're, if they're going to be assigned by an agent or a publisher. Those are very real frustrations. But what if 
somebody just really took it to the An extreme that was really just out there. And what would he do and how would he go about it? And that's essentially what it was. And I align myself more with, I think, more with the, the protagonist, Ann Harper, in the fact that, you know, she's a savvy businesswoman and she's in the business for the right reasons. She, she realizes that in order for this to work, we all have to work and there's no corners that we cut. It all has to work. She's a straight shooter and an honest player. I feel more like that way. That's the way it should work. It doesn't work that way in a lot of cases. Sure. And that's obviously the blowback that our antagonist was feeling in the story and just thought he was going to thought he was going to have his way with what he wanted at any cost. Nice. Yeah. Now a couple of things that I want to we're getting ready to draw this interview to a close. Why don't you talk to the audience about your latest writing? Because Michigan Chillers yeah. and American Chillers is Jonathan Rand. Yeah. Your bestseller, your adult stuff is under Christopher, Christopher Knight. Knight. Yeah. But yeah. you've actually gone through and meditative writing for yeah, our audience yeah. out there. And we'll make sure <laughs> yeah. you get a close-up shot of this. Meditative writing. Talk to us about that. Yeah. In a nutshell, it's using the blending of meditation and writing for not only just settling your mind, but then w one of the things that occurred to me is that I, when I started getting into meditation a number of years ago, it was great to be able to sit down and just settle things and allow your mind to rest. But the problem that I've, I found over a period of time was that it's just going to get stirred up again. You're, you're still going to stir all this stuff up. And so I, I did a lot of different experimenting in ways that I mentioned in the book. Is it's taking out the trash or getting rid of it. But the truth is that you won't and you never will because life happens. Everything comes at you. You can't control a lot of things that happen in your life, but you can control how you deal with them. And the way I've always done that, or should say at least a, a large portion of my adult life has been through writing uh, and particular journaling. And you don't have to journal or keep a diary, but for me, that's been really instrumental in helping me creatively, helping me just see things in a very, in a wider pantoscopic view. And I think it helps me as well as being, as far as I work on four or five books at a time in top of my journaling. That's amazing. Yeah. But it allows me to keep things into perspective, I think. And it's not, I don't present, my medi the meditative writing book is, there's some, there's guided meditations on there. And I don't present it as like a cure-all type thing at all. But as far as dealing with anxiety, dealing with stress, and then what to do with it and how to proceed, it's almost just a different life manual. And in addition to that, you're not done with your Chiller series. No, no, not yes. at all. Not by far. So we've got American Chillers. Number 45. Yeah. Yes. The giant jack-o'-lantern of Georgia. Yeah. Yes. It's one of the new ones. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this. That one was a riot. That I just, I wrote it. It, it took a little while uh, longer to get out, but it's it's about a couple of kids, obviously, down in, in Leesburg, Georgia. And they, they meet, the, they're out digging for worms because they want to go sell them to a sporting goods store. And they've actually, well, they're going to have this little business. And <laughs> they come across the, this old woman and her name is Hattie Broussard. And the Broussard family has been growing these pumpkins there for years, but they haven't in the past few years. And there's some kind of strange circumstances surrounding that, but there's even more strange circumstances surrounding this one single pumpkin that seems to be growing in the field. And it seems to be getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And then all of a sudden it's gone one day and a couple of weeks go by and then it's Halloween. I will leave it at that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
It was a fun day. It was a fun, I had so much fun. I mean, I have fun writing all of them, but that one in particular was one of those ones where it's just, oh, I can't stop. Oh, I got to keep my hair. I love it. Chris, if somebody's listening to this interview. They want to check you out because I know right now we're filming this in yeah. encrypted headquarters. Yeah, so yeah, Chillermania. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, if somebody wants to stop by, see you, get an autographed yeah. copy, check out your books, find yeah. you online, where can they do that? Yeah, there are two things. Chillermania here in the summertime, we're open seven days a week. We'll be open up, what is more of like weekends and throughout the fall and winter. We're here quite a bit because we do a lot of shipping, but that's in Indian River just off I-75 in Michigan or AmericanChillers.com. We still ship a lot of, of our retail orders through there. And if you can, if you want to you mean to personalize a book, I'm happy to do that. Usually, if, sometimes it takes a couple of days longer, but, but yeah, so AmericanChillers.com is a great place to, to contact me. Chris, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us today. Really appreciate it. Learned a lot, and this has been a great interview. A lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of fun. Thank you. And for our audience, you can always go to TotalMichigan.com, click on Chris's interview, and get all the links that he mentioned above. We'll see you next week when we talk to another ordinary Michigander doing some pretty extraordinary things. We'll see you then.